0: Well, as I indicated uh, before the service began, we're continuing a series in which we're looking at the marks of a healthy church. And I've added to this the marks of a healthy and faithful church. And the subject assigned to me was the subject of evangelism and discipleship with that. So I could think of no better section to go to than to uh, Matthew 28. And I'm taking as best I can Corey's message on expositional Preaching and teaching to heart as best I can because I'm going to try to tease out for us the principles of evangelism and discipleship from the text this morning. Um, we're going to be looking in particular at Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20, a text that's probably familiar to many of us as the Great Commission. But I'll just to set the context of the passage, I'm going to read from verses 1 through uh, 10. And then pick back up in 16 through the end of the chapter. In Matthew 28, verse beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord had descended. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. But then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples, this is verse 16, went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. that your spirit would be with us, that he who is our helper would illumine your word to us and help us to understand it. Lord, I pray that you would overcome any inadequacies in me in delivering um, this message this morning, that you would ground me in your truth and that I would explain it clearly, and that you would protect your people from distractions uh, of mind or heart and that they would be profited by it. For Christ's sake, amen. Children, I trust that it's true of all of you that at some point in your life, your mom or dad or grandmother or grandfather or whomever it is that God has uh, charged with your care by his providence, they may have given you a list of things to do. They've asked you to do something. And sometimes we expect a great deal of our children and we'll give them a list of things to do. Recognizing that you might not be able to complete everything, we will sometimes emphasize those things that we want you to accomplish, the things that are most important on the list. For instance, uh, some of you, uh, you might get a note from your mom or dad saying, do this, this, and this, but there might be an underline under the first one or a star next to it. Or some of you might be told that you need to do this, this, and this, but if you don't clean up your room, I am not taking you to Mac Daddy's. That emphasizes the importance of of that one particular thing. And the same can, be said, same can be said of last words. In our last words, we always emphasize that which is most important. I think, for example, of Martin Luther, as he stood before the imperial died at Worms, and what could have been his last words. He says, here I stand on the word of God. I can do no other. God help me. Or the last words of one of my heroes, uh, J. Gresson Machen, in a telegram to John Murray as he lay dying of pneumonia, In a frigid North Dakota hospital, he telegrammed him and said, I am so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No help without it. We emphasize that which is most important to us. Well, in this section, in Matthew 28, our Lord Jesus is emphasizing the importance of the church's great task. And as her king, he's commi- he commissions her to her calling. And up until this point, you'll recall that Matthew has been focused on what we refer to as the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning first with his birth and then taking us through his life, his trials and his ministry. And this section begins on somewhat of an ominous note. In the preceding chapters, the Lord Jesus has been portrayed; He has been uh, abandoned, he's been falsely tried, he's been condemned and he has been killed and he has endured the wrath of God and being dead he was laid in a tomb donated to him but in Matthew 28 our eyes return from our Lord's humiliation to the beginning of what is called his exaltation we read for instance of his resurrection from the dead his appearance to the women at the tomb and in verse 8, he instructs his disciples to travel to Galilee to meet him, which is fitting for him to do. That's where he began his earthly ministry and where he commissioned them before. But here he will commission them again and through them his church and give to his church her marching orders. The task of evangelizing and discipling the nations. And so I trust you can see already why I chose this text to deal with the subject of evangelism and discipleship and What I hope to show you from this text is that based upon his authority as the exalted Christ, the Lord Jesus commissions his church to evangelize and to disciple the nations, promising his presence and protection until he returns in glory. That based upon the authority he has as the risen Christ, he commissions his church to evangelize and disciple the nations, promising to be with her and protect her, Until he returns in glory. My God's grace will consider this passage under three points. We'll consider first the basis for this commission. Next, we'll consider the nature of the commission. And three, we will consider the promise of the commission. So beginning in verse 18, the basis for the commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I wonder if this text at all strikes you as a bit odd, a bit perplexing. It reminds me in some instances in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus says, I have not come to do my will, but the will of the Father. What does our Lord mean here? All authority has been given to me. Who gave it to him? Jesus, up until this point, you have claimed to be the eternal Son of God. You You have shown yourself to be the second person of the Godhead, equal with the Father, fully divine. You just received worship, which is only to be given to God and God alone. What do you mean all authority has been given to you? Have you not already had it? How did you acquire it? What does our Lord mean here? Well, in these 12 words, our Lord quite literally summarizes the entirety of the Bible and volumes upon volumes of theology he summarizes here the significance of his incarnation and the reward for his work of redemption and to explain it you're going to get it in a summary of about five sentences before we unpack it unpack it a little bit further but this is what's going on here in eternity past God the Father and the Son covenanted to redeem a people And in so doing, the father commissioned the son to be the mediator, the representative, the the go-between between between God and man. And he did so for the elect. And how does the son accomplish this? How can he represent man? By taking unto himself man's nature and becoming a servant, fulfilling all righteousness and dying in their stead. And on the basis of completing this work, The father is pleased to glorify the son. We read, for instance, this exact thing in Philippians two, five through 11, where we read, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to a thing to be grasped, meaning though he was truly God there in in terms of talking about in the form of God, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, or on the basis of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. You see. In our text here this morning, Lord Jesus Christ is not speaking here with reference simply to his divine nature. He is speaking here as the Lord's Christ, as the God-man, as the mediator of the covenant of grace. We read this, for instance, well summarized in chapter 8, paragraph 2 of uh, the Westminster Confession, which sets forth this doctrine so well in dealing with the Son's incarnation. It says, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take to himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, meaning he had a real body and a reasonable soul, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood were inseparably joined together. in the one person who's the one person, the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the eternal son, he is the most high God equal with father, equal with the father. But as the son incarnate, as the God man, as the mediator, we read that he was meek and lowly of heart as God. He does all things for his own glory and as the Christ, he did all things for the Father's glory. And it's precisely here where we see the beginning of the culmination of the fulfillment of this mediatorial work. We read back in Philippians 2, what that encompassed, taking to himself a human nature. And you recall that the first 27 chapters of Matthew's Gospel recounts precisely this. How does Matthew begin his Gospel? With nothing other than the genealogy and miraculous birth of our Lord, demonstrating that he is both truly God and truly man. And throughout the rest of the gospel, Matthew chronicles for us the further humiliation of our Lord, his humble birth, the suffering he endured throughout his earthly ministry, facing the temptations by Satan in Matthew chapter four and rejection by his own people and the emotional agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and the climax of it all, his death and burial. But notice here in chapter 28, there is a shift in focus. No longer does Christ speak as a suffering servant, but as the exalted and risen Christ who has completed the work that the father had given him. And it's on the basis of the completion of this work that we read that this authority was given to him. Notice how he acquired it here. He did not take it. He did not seize it. Rather, it was given to him by the father. This is what we read of in Psalm 2. And if you ever want to know what all the Psalms are about, read Psalm 1 and 2, and that sets up the entire Psalter for you. But there we read, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. notes that by virtue of accomplishing his work as the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the Father now, not as one who must make a humble plea, as would, it would be the case for someone in authority over him, but as one who can make a legal demand to that which he is entitled. And so having accomplished this work of redemption, we see that the Father has been pleased to have given him this authority. And next, I want you to notice the scope of this authority. Unlike the empires of the earth, it's not confined to a geographical region. It's boundless. It extends to all the earth and every inch of heaven. It comprehends the whole of creation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the sole king of everything. He is Lord of all, Acts 10.36 says. He has power in heaven and on earth. He is sovereign over men and has dominion of the angels. And so it's on the basis of this authority that has been given to him as he has been raised in glory and king over all things, and especially king of his church, that the Lord Jesus Christ here now commissions his church to spread his kingdom. Which brings us to our second point, the nature of the commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey all things which I have commanded you. Now, I want you to pay especially close attention to this instruction. More often than not, because of the way translations work, we initially focus in on the word go. However, um, in the original, and it doesn't come through quite as clearly in the translation, this passage contains one imperative and three, for you grammar fans, participles. It It contains one imperative and three participles. The one imperative here, the command, is make disciples. The three actions are going, baptizing, and teaching. And so these actions, going, baptizing, and teaching, are the means by which Christ commands the church to use in creating disciples. And so our Lord commissions this church here with one great undertaking to be occupied with until his return making disciples, and then he tells her how to do it. Notice here that the text does not say that the church should be concerned with whatever uh, societal or issue that we think is most important and that she should be preoccupied with that. Oftentimes, even if it's something that should be taken care of or it would be rightfully done, the church can get sort of hoodwinked into taking up issues that aren't hers, Her commission is simply to spread the gospel and to evangelize the nations and to disciple the nations. So, how is it that disciples are made? The first step, our Lord says here, is going. And this is where we derive the concept of missions. But it's not only foreign missions that we're talking about here. You'll recall that, for instance, following Pentecost... The very first evangelistic outreach of the church was in Jerusalem, the very center of religious worship. But the text here clearly includes foreign missions because we read that we are to make disciples of all nations. Our Lord here is not referring to simply nation states. He's not saying go to Rome, go to Greece or anything like that. But nations here means people, people groups, tongues, tribes go across every border to every nationality to every language, to all those outside of God's covenant and preach the gospel to them, bring them in, proclaim the gospel to them. And what is the gospel? It's the good news of salvation. But as many of you here know, because this is oftentimes the gospel gets introduced, is that the good news isn't often known to be good news until we know what the bad news is. And the bad news is this. That God, though God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, though he created man after his own image with knowledge and righteousness and holiness, man rebelled against God and plunged himself into an estate of sin and misery. Man forfeited the holiness and righteousness, righteousness with which he was created and by nature now is alienated from God under his wrath and curse and deserving of hell, and is dead judicially, spiritually, and every day closer and closer to physically. But let's make it personal. By birth, each of us, each of you, myself included, are justly deserving the wrath of God. And that's awful news. That's awful news because in and of ourselves, we can't fix that. But here's the good news. From all eternity, God chose to glorify Himself in the salvation of sinners. And He decided to do so through the work of a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who, being fully God and fully man, purchased a perfect salvation for all those whom God had given to him before the foundations of the earth. And to demonstrate the truth of that, after satisfying the wrath of God on the cross, he raised him from the dead as a declaration that his sacrifice was approved and that any sinner who desires salvation would come to him. And so I would ask you here today, where do you stand? Have you received and rested upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone? And if you have not, why not? You know his authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. As king of the earth, he has commanded you to believe in him. And as king of heaven, if you would be there, you will be there on his terms. And the terms are that none can come to him or none can come to the father except through him. And so would you spurn his authority? Would you spurn his kindness? I pray that if any of you. Within the sound of my voice, have any desire whatsoever to turn and trust in him today that you will not harden your hearts, but that you would do so. And for those of you trusting in the Lord Jesus, I would ask you, do you revere his authority? Do you seek him where he may be found with with prayer in his word, with reverence as one who has authority? Do you read and study his word with the same fervency as searching for precious jewels With the same immediacy that you would open a letter from the IRS if you got it, which I would hope you would open quickly because that's very important. Or do you treat treat his word like it's a piece of junk mail, sits on the counter with no intention or purpose to open it, if ever? Do you seek, as we'll see in a moment, to do what he commands? But. In addition to the preaching of the gospel, we see here, next in the way of making disciples, our Lord tells the church to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. I wonder if someone were to have asked you about baptism, Would the subject of, or about evangelism, would the subject of baptism have even come up? Oftentimes, we are satisfied when someone makes a profession of faith, and that's a wonderful thing. But you'll notice here that our Lord has inseparably joined evangelism and the preaching of the gospel, gospel with baptism. Why would he have done that? Well, we're going to see that in a moment, but I would, I would submit to you that this is clearly the ministry uh, of the apostles. I'll give you three examples quickly. In concluding his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2.36, Peter proclaims, Let all the house of Israel therefore know that for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And you'll recall the, the story of the, or the recount of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. There, the Apostle Philip is directed by the Spirit to go to the Ethiopian eunuch who is traveling home. And as the Apostle, or as the Apostle Philip approaches him, he hears the Ethiopian eunuch reading uh, verses from Isaiah. And the passage was this He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, asked Philip, what does this mean? And Philip says to him, or in verse thirty five of that chapter, it reads, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news or gospel about Jesus. And what's interesting there is that immediately in the next verse. It reads, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? There's nothing in verse thirty five that indicates or that Philip mentioned anything about baptism. But the response of the eunuch clearly demonstrates that that was part of the message. That was part of the evangelization of the, of the apostles' practice. And the same is true with the apostle Paul. In Acts 16, you recall, the Philippian jailer, he said to Paul in verse 30, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of that night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So why does our Lord and the apostles stress baptism as part of evangelism and discipleship? And it's, it's because of what baptism is. Not in and of itself as the washing of water could, as if the washing of water could cleanse our conscience, but by the operation And the appropriation of what it represents by by faith. So what is baptism? I like this summary in Catechism 165. Baptism is a sacrament, meaning that it was something instituted by Christ, wherein Christ ordains the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal, it's important language, we'll get back to that in a second, of engrafting into himself of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Now there is so much that could be said about this meaning here that's of baptism, but what I want to focus on today is just four things from this as it relates to evangelism and discipleship. And that's this. First, as Christ identified himself with his people in baptism, Baptism signifies and seals are engrafting into him. That language is important. Signifies and seals. And the reason I say that is because a sign is never the thing that it signifies. What do I mean by that? If you're approaching a sharp turn in a road and there's a sign that says there's a sharp turn in the road coming up, the sign is not the sharp turn in the road, if that makes sense. And so to here, baptism in and of itself does not save you. It does not engraft you into Christ into Christ just by the washing of water. It is Christ who saves us by virtue of our union with him. But it is a sign of our union with him and engrafting into him that we belong to him. And our Lord includes baptism here because discipleship cannot occur absent our belonging to him, being united to him by faith. And secondly, Christ here is emphasizing that discipleship can't occur without the communion of saints and participation in his church. One of the things baptism represents is our membership, our incorporation to the people of God and incorporates us into Christ's kingdom, so to speak, in terms of the visible church. And Paul writes of this, and that's where the disciples are made. Paul writes of this specifically in terms of the disciples being made there in Colossians 1:28 through 29, where it says, In Christ, it is Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, in Christ, And so it's within the embrace of the church where the accountability, the building up, the discipline that Mike spoke of, it's within the church where this takes place. And there's a quote from early church father that I think rings very true with this. And that is he would have God as his father would have the church for his mother, recognizing the importance of her, how Christ died for her and how it's within that body that he builds up his people. Next, we read that we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so when we are baptized, it's as if God places his mark upon us and carves us out from the world and says, these are my people. And we see with that that it's a Trinitarian enterprise. Salvation's a Trinitarian enterprise. It's into the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And so I would ask you this morning, have you submitted to the Lordship of Christ? by way of Christian baptism and membership in his church. Remember, it's one thing for someone to be providentially hindered and not be able to be baptized and not be able to be a part of God's people. Grace of salvation is not so tied to it that those who haven't been baptized or those who haven't been a part of God's church can't be saved. You can be saved without it. You think of the thief on the cross. But it's very different For the one who is providentially hindered than from being the one who consciously spurns it and rejects the sign of uh, God's people and of being within his people where he exercises his authority. So there's that. But more importantly, do you have the grace which baptism is a sign of? In and of itself, baptism is a poor savior. Have you been born again by the Spirit? Do you have inward evidence of those things which we spoke of a moment ago that baptism represents? Are you able to come before God with a clean conscience, knowing that just as water washes away uh, dirt from the body, Christ's blood has washed you from your sins and you have free access to them? Do you have the grace that's signified by it? And isn't God kind? He knows our frailty. He knows our desire for things Uh, sensible things we can see. And he's given us this wonderful picture of the whole of redemption in baptism. He's given this wonderful picture of his body in the Lord's Supper. We should emphasize those things more than some other things that we emphasize at times. So, very good. Last in the way of evangelism and discipleship, we have teaching. Our Lord instructs the church to Teach them. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And that's the church's great task. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. As we read a moment ago, Paul puts it in a different way to present everyone mature in Christ. But notice here, our Lord is not simply content to say teach, but to teach them to observe. Our Lord has no time, so to speak, for merely an intellectual understanding of what he commands, but that we would have a heartfelt desire to obey him in everything. That the obedience of faith, as Paul notes, would flow from our minds and hearts and find fruition in living the Christian life. For instance, children, you know your Lord commands you to obey your mother and father. And if, he instructs, and if they instruct you to do something, As long as it's not sinful, you should do it. Do you do so? And if you do so, why do you? Do you do so simply to avoid getting in trouble? That's a good reason. Or do you do so because you generally desire to honor them and, in so doing, honor God who has placed them in charge of you? The same goes for parents. I'm not going to just pick on the kids. When you discipline your children, do you so do so because they have annoyed you or do you seek to discipline them? Not for your own purposes, but as stewards of God to nurture them in the grace of God. I say this because motivation matters. Our Lord is getting to the heart here. Heart motivated obedience, obedience out of love for God and his law, because a transformed heart can act contrary to its nature. Meaning that if it's been if, if, if you've been born again by God. Your heart has been changed. The, the the motivating factors of your life have been changed so that your desire here is to glorify and enjoy him. And in so doing manifesting that enjoyment of God and the glorifying of God through faithful obedience to what he commands. And notice here, too, that our Lord doesn't simply say, teach them merely the essentials of the gospel. That's, of course, that that's covered by the evangelism. And he doesn't say either, well, teach them the five points of Calvinism, and then boom, we're done, go home, mission complete. He says to teach them to observe everything I have commanded. And what is it that he has commanded? What he has commanded is every promise, every command, every threatening contained in his word. In the 66 books we call the Bible. The word of God recorded, all inspired by the spirit of God, inerrant and infallible in all that it teaches, the sole rule for faith and practice. That's 2 Timothy 3.16 pretty much. And so we see the nature of the commission, evangelism and discipleship, and what does that mean? And before we address, the next point here is the promise of the commission. You'll read there, and behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Now, before we address this promise straight on, I know what you're thinking. What a daunting task. I'm sure glad that it was given to the church and not to me. And what I would say to that is not so fast. While our Lord's commission here is given to the apostles and through them to the church, And we know that's the case because of the things associated with it, such as baptism. That does not mean that we do not have an individual duty to witness. And the Bible speaks with equal clarity of those who make up the church witnessing of their Lord. This is one of my favorite examples of what we would call lay evangelism. But uh, you'll recall in John 9 that our Lord heals a man born blind. I love this section. In verse 13... Uh, We read that though that they brought the man who had been born blind to the Pharisees. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So Jesus had spit into the mud and covered his eyes and healed him. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Side note, that was keeping the Sabbath by by. Engaging in this act of mercy, Christ was keeping the Sabbath. The Pharisees had had a mistaken view of the Sabbath and um, didn't know the first thing about keeping it. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. Continuing on, this just gets better in terms of the way this guy witnesses for the Lord. In John 9:24. so for the second time, they called the man who had been uh, born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. And this is what the blind man said. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, and this is so awful the way they treat this man. You are his disciple, but we are his we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses as if as if they can pit Moses against Christ. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where this man comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man weren't from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, this is so awful. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they threw him out. Isn't it interesting that this is one of the main accounts of lay witnessing in the Bible? Perhaps there have been occasions in the past where you felt unequipped, to share the gospel with someone, ill-equipped to give witness to the Lord, don't know what I'm going to say, how I'm going to do this, fill in the blank. Here we have a man who the Holy Spirit has memorialized on the pages of Scripture forever, who had no flashy pre-memorized gospel presentation, who speaks simply of his encounter with Christ. And notice, there's no mention that anyone was converted by it. In fact, the opposite is implied, that they harden their hearts. So, my reason for sharing that with you is to take heart, be ready to testify for your Lord when, in God's providence, He calls you to it. And for those of us, we're in various seasons of our lives. Some of you, it will be in the discipleship of your children. Some of you will be in the workplace. I think of last night, for instance, um, I was hanging out, hanging with a, a target uh, of this church and with his family, and we were in a public place, and uh, he encountered a uh, Person he didn't know, and they struck up a conversation, and he simply invited him to church. It's a great thing to do. I've said before, and I'll say it again: if you want to get hit by a train, stay play on the railroad tracks. Children don't do that. But my point there is that it's within the church, as we've seen already, that God administers His grace. It's under the preaching of His Word. Invite people to church if you don't if you don't know that you can testify to the Lord and give a full on gospel presentation, you can invite them to church. And that's what it's for. So I think that that's one of the things that the church can uh, can do is to help help you grow in that. um, But also to uh, hopefully bring about the salvation or preach the salvation of Lord Jesus to them. So. um, But the reality is, is this really is a daunting task, isn't it? It's a scary task. After all, how does the Bible summarize the mission field? I'll give you a couple things it says. It's a world that hates God. It's a world under his wrath and curse. There is an animosity to the claims of Christ, to this one way of peace between God and man, and to his authority. We read of that in Psalm 2 just a little while ago. And what can be said of the world can be said of those who live in it and who were sent to. Hate the light, won't come to the light. Hate righteousness, that's John 1. Which is why our Lord here concludes with this wonderful promise, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our Lord here reminds us that neither the church nor any of us individually can proceed in our own strength. How is Lord Jesus with us? Well, he's not physically with us. He's going to ascend into heaven in a few, uh, well, later on, a few days, or later after this account, and sit at the right hand of the Father. Where he'll sit till he returns physically in the future. However. Remember what he's promised in John 16:7, where we read that he says to them after saying that he would depart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the helper here is that great helper, the Holy Spirit. And so here he promises his presence by his Holy Spirit, as the risen Christ who will ascend into heaven, so he will send his Spirit to be with his people. And notice here that it's a constant presence. It's not an, I will be with you. It's not now and then even as it was for a time after he was raised from the dead. He was with them, and then he would be gone for a little while, and then he would be with them again, and he would be gone for a little while. But by sending forth his spirit, he assures us that each of us in union with him will enjoy his presence continually without intermission. And so as though, although God at times may hide himself from us, as it says in Isaiah forty-five fifteen, yet he is never absent from us. Sometimes he may seem to be in the dark, but he is never distant. And so he is with us by his spirit and he indwells his church to carry us, to bear us, to sustain us through our sufferings and to make the ministry of his church effective for the discipling of the nations, for tearing down the gates of hell, which are a defensive measure, by the way. It's gates that are torn down because the gospel is going forward and to work all things for his glory and because we're united to him, they will be for our good. And what better help could we ask for in this daunting task? You know, it's, it's an interesting fact of history that by this time, after three years of ministry, the Son of God, uh, after his resurrection, if you look at the church, it was about 150 people, give or take. This is essentially the size of this congregation on a really packed day. But what's interesting is in Acts 2, After the sending forth of his spirit, we read that after one sermon by the Apostle Peter, 3,000 people, at least, joined the church. What a powerful helper we have. And so take heart, dear Christian, because you have the fullness of the triune God on your side. The Father who chose you, the risen and ascended Son, unto whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, has not only saved you, but he has sent his spirit to indwell you, to unite him to you, and he has promised to be with you and his church until he returns, and he has promised um, to put all things under his feet, and he has promised to give effect to the church's work by the Spirit. And so perhaps the task isn't that daunting after all. We just need to be faithful. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. I do pray, Lord, that uh, it would prove that it prove profitable in the lives of your people. And Lord, we confess that we oftentimes overlook um, your commands, even when you make them so clear and you tell us what we need to do. We're 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 like a herd of sheep. We're very slow to listen. And uh, sometimes we think we're wiser than we are. But Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for that and that you would renew in us a heart that desires to see the world transformed by your gospel. And uh, that was-